Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week we have an, a really exciting topic, legal. There's a lot of things that that word means, but especially in crypto, but we're going to cover hopefully a fair amount of ground today in terms of regulatory and, and legal perspectives ranging from DeFi to DAOs to policy to really anything else. I think there's a lot of questions and topics that come up for anyone working in crypto and the information's out there, but it can be a little hard to digest and understand. So this week, I'm, I'm really pumped to bring on two of the best lawyers in the space I know. They're both very good at they're both, first off, they're both very smart, and they're also good at explaining things to people with a non-legal background. So to introduce the guest this week, we have Mark Borwin from DYDX. He's been super actively involved in, in a lot of things that actually we've been working on at Reverie, but is just someone that has a deep knowledge base in, in terms of DeFi, DAOs, and has a lot of interesting perspectives. The other guest we brought on is Jake Trubinsky. Jake has worn a, a few different hats in crypto. He was previously the general counsel of Compound, which is the leading decentralized lending and borrowing platform. And he's now head of policy at the Blockchain Association. So he's now on the different vantage point, but has a lot to share as well. So I guess to jump right into things, what do you guys see as the main legal challenges for DeFi and or DAOs today? And I know that's a broad question, but I'll let you take it in whatever direction you'd like, starting with Jake. Sure. Well, first of all, um, thank you very much for having us. I think this will be a fun discussion. Look, I think the main issue, this will not surprise anyone, is the application of the federal securities laws here in the U.S., to any number of different elements of a DeFi protocol. I think for better or worse, mostly for worse, everyone who works in crypto has had to learn about things like the Howey test and the definition of an investment contract and all these other sort of ordinarily esoteric legal issues that only lawyers like Mark and I would have to deal with. But the problem is the federal securities laws impose a fairly onerous compliance regime on the issuers and participants, you know, securities and the securities markets. And there's an open question as to whether those laws apply to digital assets for starters, but then also to decentralized protocols for transactions in those assets. So the main question that we have to deal with now is trying to figure out how do the federal securities laws apply, if at all, how do we address the underlying policy concerns that the federal securities laws seek to handle, and how can we build, hopefully, a collaborative relationship with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, which until this point, unfortunately, has not been very supportive of development in this space. Um, definitely, the securities laws are the main issue that we're dealing with, although only one of many, as you go down the list of the regulatory frameworks that may or may not apply to DeFi in any number of ways. Got it. Mark, anything to add there? Yeah, the thing that I'd add is looking at things from an international perspective is there's an organization that many people maybe in crypto know because it's been in the news, but that isn't typically well known, which is FATF, the Financial Action Task Force. It's a body that doesn't actually have the power to implement laws, but it makes recommendations and provides guidance to most countries around the globe. And some guidance that I think was mentioned a lot several months ago tied closely into DeFi. And I think one of the big issues that doesn't exist now, but is one that's going to play out 
is going to be the impact that guidance and the implementation of that guidance and those recommendations from countries has on DeFi. And specifically, when we look at things from the US perspective, we usually feel pretty good about coding and deploying contracts and the protections that come with it. And But when you look internationally, it gets like a whole lot trickier. And so the impact that it's going to have on the development of DeFi I think willingness of participants in smaller multi-sigs to participate in DeFi may end up playing out at some point over the next you know, year or two years. Before we get into the really deep, wonky legal questions, which I know you guys are excited to chat about, and we are too, I'd like to take a quick step back and just talk about like the mental models people have for legal in this space. It seems like, you know, in our experience, a lot of founders and non-technical folks, their mental model for what legal means is the internet. It's the Amazons, the Ubers of the world who kind of moved fast and broke things and shaped regulation after the fact. And it seems like a lot of the GCs we speak to in this space, the mental model is a little bit different. I'm curious how you guys think about it, the mental model people should be using, whether it's the internet or something else for regulating crypto in general. It's a good point. And I think, you know, one interesting aspect of this conversation is the difference in backgrounds between Mark and me. So, you know, I, before I got into crypto, was a litigator. So my job was to sort of dig into the gray area where it wasn't totally clear how a law might apply to a given area. And I think a lot of lawyers who deal with regulatory compliance, I'm curious how Mark thinks about this given his transactional background, but a lot of lawyers who think about regulatory compliance don't like to engage in gray areas or in areas where it is unclear how the law might apply. Most regulatory compliance lawyers are used to complying with licensing or registration regimes where you're either 100% sure that you are in compliance, right? You've gotten a thumbs up and a green check from the government or for some regulatory body, or you don't proceed at all. And the problem with doing crypto work with that mentality of either 100% certainty or not moving forward at all is that the regulatory regimes just don't match up neatly with the types of development that, especially in the DeFi space, that software developers are doing. Broadly speaking, it is impossible to build a DeFi protocol that is obviously compliant with all laws and regulations because the laws and regulations just aren't designed to address a disintermediated financial system. I mean, this is sort of is the thread that runs through both Mark's and my answer to the last question about what are the legal issues that we focus on the most. Both the securities laws and the anti-money laundering laws are premised on the presence of a centralized intermediary that can be deputized to perform a specific service or to go about some compliance obligation in a way that just doesn't make sense in the DeFi world. So I think the mental model that lawyers have to bring to the crypto world broadly, but DeFi specifically, is not to get too tied up in the hyper-technical analysis of laws and regulations designed for different systems, but rather to look at the underlying policy goals that those laws and regulations are trying to accomplish, and then figure out how can we accomplish those underlying goals and objectives using this new technology. A very different thing, I think, from what most compliance and transactional lawyers do in the, uh, in the traditional financial system. Yeah, I entirely agree with Jake on that. I think like when you think of it from a transactional perspective, the first thing that you think of is, 
okay, what box does this fit into? Like in my mental model, when I look at securities laws, like where does this fit? And, you know, I think what any good lawyer is going to do is when they first look at something, if something clearly fits into a bucket, they're going to take a second look at it and say, okay, this is how I think it works. Let me dig in one step deeper and see if that's actually how this operates. And that's a very first step that many lawyers who are not active in this space fail to do. Once you take that second step, though, and, and take a deeper look, I think it's like really important as a transactional attorney to still be able to say, yeah, I might want this thing to exist, but actually in the way that it operates, like clearly the laws apply to this. That's like a very small set of issues. There is like a world within the crypto like regulations where like there is that clarity. And in that case, like as a lawyer, you need to be able to say, well, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. But to Jake's point, where you generally fall is in this world where it is very unclear where you actually fall within the securities laws, for example. And in that case, your job is to look at this and say, okay, do I have a reasonable amount of confidence in the arguments and the positions that this client is going to take to be able to support it and move it forward? And are there ways in which we can like support that further and minimize the risk further? And that's where Jake's point is like most relevant on the policy side, which is when you've done that from a pure like regulatory perspective, you've looked at it, you said, I think we have really good arguments here. And, and frankly, the law should be on our side, or maybe it's unclear whether the law is on our side on this one. Then you go to the policy question. Are we actually like furthering policy goals when we engage in this activity? And if we are furthering policy goals in engaging in this activity, and we believe that this activity does fit within the law, though it's not clear, then the answer is probably a lawyer should be able to reach the conclusion, at least, that the client can go forward with this if this is a risk that they are willing to take. Because that's ultimately the key, is the client gets to decide what risk they are willing to take as long as the lawyer is not advising them to engage activity that looks very likely to be illegal or harmful to somebody. Since you guys covered a lot of the, the mental models for how to think about legal, one other thing I think that the listeners may want to know is just the sort of lawyers that operate in the crypto space. You know, I think a lot of people are sort of used to choosing a doctor. It's like if you need someone or if you have some eye problems, you know, you'll go to an optometrist, a dentist, maybe for teeth problems. What sort of lawyers operate in this space? What are the specialties and how should founders and teams think about it? That's a really good question, Larry, because it's, it's very difficult because traditionally what you do with lawyers is you find a lawyer who specializes in something and then you go to them and you get their advice. So you are going to do a securities offering. And so you would go to a securities attorney and ask them for advice. The thing that's very difficult on the DeFi side of things is the breadth of the regulatory regimes that apply. So when you're going to launch a protocol, you're probably looking at five or six different regulatory regimes that should be analyzed. And there's like a decent chance that like two to four of them could apply depending on how the protocol is built, what admin keys exist, what rights are associated with them. And so in that sense, it's not like really clear that you need to be looking at a lawyer that has any set of specialty. And for that reason, 
generally what you want is you want to look at lawyers who frankly are in the space continuously on a day-to-day basis and have that expertise at their disposal. Now, some people might be able to speak like broadly on these issues from a, do they apply to you as a founder or company perspective? And then they might bring in others to the extent that there's a specific question. And then there's others who might have like a broad team who gets brought on holistically to give advice. I typically tend to prefer the person who is in the space, understands the technology, understands the regulatory regimes at quite a bit level of depth, although they might not be able to advise on compliance for every single regime. And that way, they're going to allow projects to move forward a lot more quickly. But then they still have the judgment to know, I need to bring in somebody that has the right expertise when you get to a certain point in the project at which like there's a thornier issue on a specific point. And that's why typically you want to be with a lawyer who has the ability to bring that type of person in and has the judgment to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, that's a great answer. And I think that's really helpful, actionable advice for how you pick a good lawyer. I will just say it is very hard to find good lawyers who really understand what's going on in crypto. So, you know, for any founders out there who have struggled to find outside counsel who they feel like are good to work with, and it's not, you know, just like pulling teeth to try to get anything out of them that's useful. That's, a, I think, a very common experience for a number of reasons. I think one is, there are far more lawyers who will pretend that they understand crypto in order to generate business than there are lawyers who, who really do understand. And that's sort of the inside baseball of how the legal market works. Most lawyers who are in, especially in the large law firms, are spending a lot of their time on business development, not necessarily on producing legal work, right? Their job is to bring in business more so than it is to actually produce work product or provide advice. And I think because crypto has blown up so much in the last 12 to 18 months, there are a lot of lawyers out there who are looking at it as a cash cow. And so they're marketing a lot, but don't necessarily have the skills or the experience to provide really good client service. So I think one of the pitfalls is really figuring out who the lawyers are, who know what they're doing. I do think my best advice, much like what Mark said, is try to rely on the lawyers who are really in this all day, every day. The learning curve is very steep. And I think if you are not, as a lawyer, focusing the vast majority of your time, understanding the technology as much as you are learning how to apply you know, financial regulatory frameworks to that technology, if you're not doing that most of the time, then you're going to have a really difficult time giving good advice. So I think lean on the lawyers who are really in this and also ask lawyers who you know and trust for referrals. And this is something that Mark and I do fairly often is one of us will hear from a friend who works for a DeFi project or another crypto company who is looking for a referral to outside counsel, and we can try to help direct people to the right law firms who really qualify to do this kind of work. So I think relying on that network is more important in crypto than it even is in most industries. The one other thing that I'll add to this is that this is not like a perfect gauge, but like generally speaking, if you look at the lawyers who are most active in this space, and I think who are probably at the forefront of giving the better advice on it, 
you're usually looking at lawyers who have between like four and 10 years of experience post law school. And this is like a, a sweet spot where you've got lawyers who have enough legal knowledge to be able to give good advice, but then also the ability to learn the technology, as Jake pointed out. And don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that there's no lawyers who have practiced for more than 10 years who don't have the ability to do this. It's that red flag. The second it's somebody who's less than four years and more than 10 years, where you say, are they developing business or don't have the requisite legal knowledge to actually do this? And you ask yourself twice whether that's the case, if they don't fit within that bandwidth. And maybe you end up asking yourself that question and they end up you know, fitting what you need and being great. I think oftentimes you'll realize, okay, let me look for somebody within that like, bandwidth of experience and they'll end up being what you need. Yeah, to your guys' point, like finding a good lawyer is one of the main challenges that founders deal with all the time. Aside from sort of years of experience, are there any other qualitative or subjective things that allows someone without a legal background to, to see if someone does understand what they're talking about or if they're just generating business? I think the only way to do it is to have a conversation with that person and see if they sound like they know what they're talking about, right? And there's, there, you know, I think it only takes probably five or 10 minutes of that conversation to know whether you've got someone who's on the level or not. The problem is most of the heuristics that you would use as a client to decide if your lawyer is good or not, those heuristics don't work in crypto, right? Often you would look at the law firm, right? And there are some law firms that are known for being good at certain subjects and, and not for others. The problem, like Mark said, is you could have a law firm that is a phenomenal securities transactional firm, but hasn't done any crypto work and so don't understand the specifics related to crypto. You also have a lot of small firms that do not have national brand name recognition who ordinarily you would say, well, why would I work with this small no-name firm? But then the lawyers there are actually some of the best in the entire world for crypto. So it's really hard to use sort of the law firm name as a heuristic. The same thing with all the other typical credentials, right? What law school they went to, or whether they had experience in a position in government that's ordinarily impressive, or clerkships or things like this. It, there's really no good substitute for just talking to the person and feeling them out right? When you ask them a question about decentralized exchange protocols, you're going to know really fast if they actually know what a DEX is and how an AMM works, or if they were just sort of pretending in order to try to generate business. So I would say just get on the phone and, and see what you think. Something that's been eye-opening to me and, and Reverie as we've been sort of navigating the legal landscape is just getting a sense of, hey, is the opinion we're getting from a risk-on lawyer, someone, a firm that is maybe extremely cowboyish, or is this a firm that is extremely conservative? And then there's everything in between. How should founders in the, in the crypto space think about the, the conservative legal opinions versus the cowboy ones? And how do you even tell the difference? Yeah, that's a really difficult for a founder to do. I would say that at a certain point, you need to have picked a lawyer that you trust. And one of the things that I think it happens less than it did back in like 2017, 2018, but it still happens a lot is like the second guessing game. If you go with a lawyer and then you go talk to another one, you might even retain the other one as well to like double check like what they're doing. I honestly think that that ends up being like pretty harmful. I think you need to pick a lawyer that you trust and then go with them. The three things that how you test them out. Like the first one is, 
talk about the tech, as Jake said. Do they understand this integration and how it would work at a high level? Second one, talk about the community. Just talk about how people collaborate, how they work together, the way DAOs work. Just have a discussion about that. And you're going to have, I think, a pretty good idea. The third one, which I think is just as important as the first two, is you need to ask them about their past experience. And you need to listen really well when you ask them this. Because some lawyers are really good salespeople. And so they're going to convince you that they can handle this. But the truth is, like, they need to give you examples. They shouldn't include client names. Some are going to say, no, we can't tell you because we can't divulge client information. Well, that's just somebody who hasn't actually done the work, right? The ones who have done the work will be willing to tell you what they've done and very specifically how they went about it and what they did without actually talking about specific clients. And they should be able to do that more than I once did this, right? They should be able to talk to you about two or three examples in detail about what they've done. If they can't give you those examples, I wouldn't work with them. Yeah, I second all of that. I would also say along the lines, actually, of finding a lawyer that you trust. Hopefully, if you're a founder, you will have lawyers you can ask who are not the lawyers who are going to represent you just for a gut check on whether you're hiring the right people. So maybe that will come through an investor that you have. So just as an example, I am a strategic advisor to Variant Fund. And one of the things that I sometimes do is connect portfolio companies with outside counsel. And sometimes they'll ask me, we were thinking about working with this lawyer or that law firm, what do you think about them? And you know, I can sort of help steer them in the right direction. Or maybe projects have either angel investors who are lawyers or members of the community who are lawyers who you can just, you know, trust and ask for a gut check, even if that's not the lawyer who's going to do the work to just help give a gut check on, on whether you're hiring the right person or not. I think this is also true when it comes to hiring in-house. So maybe we'll talk about that a little bit as well. But you know, one thing that can be really helpful is for founders to go through the process of hiring a GC, a general counsel, or a chief legal officer, a CLO. And I think you know most tech startups don't hire in-house counsel until they have maybe 25 to 50 employees. That's usually around when you start thinking about your first in-house legal hire. Maybe it's around a series B. Um, in crypto, it's often much earlier. I think a lot of projects hire even before a series A. Maybe the first in-house counsel is around employee number 10 or 15. And I think it does make a lot of sense for this very reason to try to bring in in-house counsel uh, sooner than usual so that they can sort of offload that process. I'm glad you brought up the in-house counsel role because it seems to me, and, and I'm sure some of you have had this experience, it seems to me technical founders in particular, they don't really know what a GC does. And so if you recommend, if you're an investor and you're sitting on the board and you're like, hey, you guys need a GC, the founder would typically push back and say, hey, we really don't really have that much work, legal work for the GC to do. And of course, that's usually false. But just so people could better understand what a GC actually does day to day, could, could you guys get into some detail there? Sure. Happy to jump into it. There's the crypto-specific stuff, and then there's the non-crypto-specific stuff, right? So the easiest non-crypto-specific stuff, right, is you've just got your typical corporate things. You've got employment, kind of human resources-related issues, IP-related issues, which may tie into the crypto-related stuff. You know, depending on whether you're all virtual or not, you might have some kind of like real estate-related stuff. 
but really like all of the typical stuff. And, and that stuff, frankly, isn't the time consuming part. And you also have kind of general commercial contracts. Really the time consuming part and where you get kind of value from an in-house counsel is really around, I think, like judgment calls on these issues, in addition to like unlocking the speed at which a company wants to move. So this can change depending on like the environment, but like in the current environment where you've got lawyers who are extremely busy at every law firm, one of the best things an in-house lawyer is going to be able to do is basically unlock the speed at which you can move. If you go to a firm and you send them an analysis of a protocol or even simplify it, send them a contract that you want to negotiate, you know, you're going to hear back from them a few days later. They're going to look at it. And like within like two to three weeks, you might have like the review or initial response to whatever you need. Where you have in-house counsel, you're going to have that done in like 24 to 72 hours, right? And so the speed at which you can move, and this is even more true when you're like iterating on the protocol that you're building and wanting to know whether something is an issue or not, or whether there's a way to improve things or lessen your risk. And you can just shoot over a message and say, hey, we're thinking about building it like this. Should we build it differently or does that work, right? And being able to like work through that on the spot is going to be like a big value add. And then I'd say like the last thing is you're going to want in-house counsel to actually like sit back and think like strategically about everything you're going to do. And I would say like on a five-year time horizon, at least, where the council is thinking through like, where are we now? Where do we want to go? What's it going to look like? Do we plan on issuing a token? If we plan on issuing a token, when will it be? How can we move things into process so that that can move quickly going forwards? How can we lessen our risk now? How can we already start planning around the token so that when the token comes, we're doing things in a way that is going to lessen our risk? We plan on launching another version of the protocol that's going to have these changes. How do we like plan for that in like six months when that's actually going to happen? So I think there's like the strategic piece to it that ends up being, I think in crypto, a big value add. The last thing I'll say about that is that legal usually is a role that people view. And I think it's accurate to say that they're more like a cost center time suck than anything else. I think in crypto legal can actually be like a value add in a very meaningful way because of, I think, how risky things are. Because a lawyer with good judgment is going to help lessen risk, but then also help you move forward, build a protocol in a different way that may still achieve what you want, but with less risk. And so I think to Jake's point, like an early hire for legal in the crypto space is like extremely valuable where it might not necessarily be in a traditional company. The point of, I mean, all that is exactly right. The point about legal being a value add instead of a cost center is such an important point. I think most founders, especially given their experience with legal, think of it as just a headache. And the best thing that legal could do is to come in and sort of reduce the headache and you're spending a certain amount of money in order to you know, take some of those pieces of work off of the plate of the CEO or the other executives of the company. I think that a good lawyer in this space, as in any industry, frankly, finds ways 
to be worth far more than they cost. And in the traditional world, this looks like a lawyer who finds a new way to monetize intellectual property. So they are actually generating more revenue for the company, right? Or finding new partnerships that can be built around a product or finding new products to launch or things like this. I think it's a little bit different in crypto, but fundamentally the same. A good lawyer is not just a cost center, they're a value add. I also think, you know, a general counsel is an officer of the company, right? The GC is an executive and a good GC will do more than just focus on legal and regulatory and policy. That is a person who is looking out for the business as much as anything else. And the difference between having outside counsel versus a GC or a CLO is Sometimes there is a misalignment of interests between outside counsel and the company. And this is you know, not to disparage outside counsel at all. Many of them are fantastic, but they are running their own business. And the way their business succeeds is by charging fees to the company, right? It is not always in their financial or economic interest to find the quickest path through an issue or to be thinking about how to advance the business interests of the company. When you have a GC, that person is economically aligned with the interests of the company. They want the company to succeed broadly, and they spend all day, every day focused only on what the company is doing. Whereas outside counsel is juggling a book of business of many clients and basically trying to accomplish as much as possible for as many clients in as little time as possible. So Mark's point about having a GC who will have the time to just sort of sit back and think holistically about long-term strategy is so important. And then I guess the last thing I would add there is there are always the unknown unknowns, right? You just sort of never know what issue might come up that you want someone who is sort of ready to go to war with you, right? That you're happy to sit in the war room with, who's been with you for months or years to sort of flag those issues and deal with them. I think it's invaluable. So perhaps this is a biased view from me and Mark, you know, given that I I was GC at Compound and that's Mark's current role. But um, I just strongly encourage, especially DeFi companies, but everyone in crypto, before you hire that third law firm to handle some specific project, maybe think about whether you want to bring someone in-house instead. Diving a little bit further into that, because I think it's a fascinating discussion on the in-house versus GC versus maybe relying on investors' counsel, is it, it seems like a lot of founders don't really want to admit this, but they don't really understand a lot of the legal advice they get. So, you know, you go to outside counsel, you ask for an opinion or some kind of analysis, they send it to you, and it's in legalese. And, and a lot of founders pretend they really understand this document, when in reality, they don't. How involved should founders and management teams be in the legal aspect? Should they speak that language or is it something that you can outsource to outside counsel and just hope they make the right decision on your behalf? It's a really hard question. I think it is unreasonable to say that founders must become lawyers to do their jobs. And that is in many ways the benefit of having in-house counsel. I should clarify If you hire a GC, it doesn't mean you will stop using outside counsel. What it means is your general counsel will be sort of like the general contractor who manages all of the outside counsel relationships. And it is their job to get legal advice, right? Really detailed work from the teams of lawyers that the company has hired, and then distill that information, that advice, right? Boil it down 
to a simple explanation so that the executives, the CEO or the CFO or whoever can make the decision without having to get deep into the weeds and you know getting a JD just to understand the advice that they're getting. So I think that is a major benefit of bringing on in-house counsel. I think if you don't have in-house counsel, then what you need to do as a founder is you have to ask questions. You have to demand from your lawyers that they go through that exercise of distilling down their advice in a way that makes sense so that founders can make informed decisions. You should not outsource your decision-making, in my opinion, to outside counsel. And outside counsel shouldn't be making those decisions. As Mark said before, ultimately, it is the client's job the founder's job, the CEO's job to make decisions about what to do and what not to do. And so many of those decisions come down to risk tolerance, right? There's no right or wrong answer for a lot of these questions. It's just a matter of how much risk do you want to take on given a range of possible consequences for that action and possible benefits based on whatever that action is. And that's a decision the CEO has to make because if someday some regulator decides that they don't like what you've done, you, the founder, have to feel like you were the one who made that decision based on good information. You don't want to find yourself in hot water thinking, this is the fault of my outside counsel. I shouldn't have trusted them to make that decision for me, right? You have to own those decisions. So I think as a founder, you have to spend the time to ask good questions and make your outside counsel explain it to you in a way that makes sense, and also to lay out a range of probabilities, right? I think one issue, especially with technical founders, you know, this is like one of the great things about engineers, but also, um, you know, one of the challenging things for us lawyers is they just want concrete answers. And often there aren't answers. There are a range of probabilities and you have to sort of weigh them and make risk-based decisions given that range of possibilities. So I think you have to ask your outside counsel to sort of handicap for you, what are all the different possibilities and then help you make that decision yourself. So Jake said that so perfectly that I'm not going to add much other than to say, with very few exceptions, I'd say the the founders of most of the more meaningful and size like DeFi protocols are very, very good at asking questions from legal and from asking for the probability of the occurrence of certain events, as Jake was pointing out, and then weighing those and asking more questions as they are weighing those. They don't actually dig into legal and know it. They end up learning through osmosis as they ask these questions because they're smart, but they don't actually know it. And so I think like it's been like clear that like almost every successful DeFi protocol has a founder who has been able to ask questions, weigh risks, and then make decisions based on the advice of counsel without actually knowing the law in depth. And just to double click on that last point specifically, like what's an example of an unproductive sort of question that someone could ask their an outside counsel? So from my perspective, some lawyers do not like founders going on the internet and learning about stuff in detail. What I find, and this will sound contrary to what I was saying, but it's really not, is like there's a certain like base level of knowledge that you want to acquire as like, especially as a first time founder. This is actually different for founders that have more experience. But as a first time founder, you want to just read things in general. 
online and take it with a grain of salt, what you read, but get this like baseline familiarity with the language. Because I'd say like one of the biggest mistakes that I think founders make is, is frankly asking questions without any information whatsoever that are extremely basic that they could have had a good sense of already. And they basically like slow down like progress that they could be making as a result of that when they could have sped up much faster. I'd say like the other thing is actually not questions. It's actually the information that you provide. I think it happens too often that founders don't provide complete information to lawyers. And so lawyers, the good ones are going to ask the questions. And this is where like understanding the technology, understanding the communities is important because the good ones will know what questions to ask because they know a complete picture has not been painted. But founders should be trying to give as much information to the lawyers as they can so that they can give kind of detailed analyses and thoughts on things, in which case then the founders are going to be able to ask more thoughtful questions when the lawyers kind of give those answers. Got it. Super helpful. I feel like this podcast is super interesting and, and frankly educational for me so far. I think there's a lot of discourse on Twitter and there's other podcasts like focused on specific legal perspectives on specific decisions or, or guidance, but not many people actually have, have spoken about the nuances of navigating the legal landscape and, and how do you make decisions. It's sort of like the metagame. And I think because crypto is does have such a complex and variety of legal challenges in terms of like jurisdictions and other things, like it's something that I feel like everyone could use a bit more clarity on. So this has been great. Shifting gears a little bit, we touched on the main challenges of DeFi sort of earlier, where it's like the Howey test is really the elephant in the room. That that's sort of the guiding point for a lot of decisions. Like it feels like the industry has been talking about the Howey test for years at this point since 2017. Like, where do you guys think this industry stands today relative to that? How should people think about it at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think when we look at like how things have evolved, I think things actually have evolved, even though they don't appear to be. The reason the Howey test is still relevant today is really because of the breadth of the Howey test. But if you look at the application of the Howey test today to like the issues that we're dealing with, they're very different from the application that we're dealing with. Sure, they both have to like deal with token issuances, for example, as like a core piece of this. But these are now token issuances in totally different contexts, right? In 2017, I would have literally actually called it a token issuance, like a company is issuing it because it almost looks like securities. Whereas today, really what it looks like is a company that is going ahead and distributing tokens in very different contexts. And those contexts like vary so significantly that like the Howey analysis is going to be different in all of these contexts. So I'd say like the biggest evolution has actually just been the market has changed so much, but the legal analyses aren't changing because frankly, the, the tests have not changed. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. I mean, I think we're going to be stuck with the Howey test for a long time, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think, again, you'll hear me talk a lot about the underlying policy goals of the law. And that's partly because I'm head of policy for the blockchain association. So that's my job. But I think it's important because 
it's hard to dispute that the underlying policy goals of the securities laws are valid, which is you do not want issuers of assets who have privileged information about the value of those assets to take advantage of that information asymmetry in selling those assets to unsuspecting purchasers. And so the goal of the laws is to make sure that there isn't that imbalance between sellers and purchasers of volatile assets. And to make sure that, and this is sort of how we case actually describes this, that there is some regulation around those who seek to use the capital of others on the promise of profits. So that I think is a valid concern. I think where the industry is now is a lot better than it was maybe five years ago, right? During the ICO bubble, I do think it's fair to say for the most part, ICOs were unregistered, unlawful securities issuances. And they were really fundraising schemes that for all intents and purposes ought to have been regulated in some way, or at least under the current securities laws. You can imagine why the SEC would think, you know, these are just typical fundraising schemes by another name. ICO was, you know, obviously a problematic title for them, given its similarity to the IPO. And it was really an attempt to evade those regulatory restrictions on the sale of securities. In 2022, we're in a totally different world, right? We have assets that have not been sold or issued. We have assets that do not look in any way like fundraising devices. Rather, we have assets that are using the benefits of a public blockchain that is the sort of fundamental invention of digital scarcity to create new types of assets that have never before been seen that don't really look in any way like traditional securities. That said, I think we still have issues where you have potentially centralized parties that are creating assets and have an information asymmetry about what's behind those assets to where we still have to think about what is the goal of the securities laws and how are we solving that goal without regulation. So I think the industry still needs to take the Howey test very seriously and in crafting these new types of protocols and tokens that are used in those protocols have to think about making sure that they are genuinely decentralized so that there isn't some central party with privileged information such that uh, it would make sense to regulate them as if they were public reporting companies. I think for a lot of technical folks in the industry, there's this common, maybe naive narrative that, hey, all these three-letter agencies, they're out there trying to stop technology from taking over the world and trying to essentially create these false headwinds for the industry. And obviously, that is not a nuanced take, and things are a little bit more complicated. But it is not exactly clear for a lot of people what the motivations of, of the SEC, of the CFTC, and these other agencies are. Can you guys speak a little bit to what are these people who work there? And there's, there's a bunch of people who work there. What are they trying to do at the end of the day? What are their internal motivations? It's hard to give a broad answer to that question because regulators are people too, right? Policymakers are people too. They all have their own motivations that are unique to them. And the different agencies have different leadership who care about different things and they each have a different remit. So they're all focused on different objectives. So my first answer is a non-answer, which is it's really hard to generalize. I guess to give a couple of categories, you have some regulators and policymakers who genuinely do understand the fundamental promise of decentralized technology, but they also see the risks. 
And because their job is to regulate, they're almost like hammers looking at nails, right? Their solution to those risks is to come up with a regulatory framework, a government solution to address those risks. Whereas I think those of us in the industry would say, we are addressing those risks through the development of better technology and better practices around security standards and things of that nature. But I think for those policymakers, they have good intentions and they are genuinely trying to protect investors or consumers or the financial system broadly from what they view as new technology or new financial products that could pose risk. So I think for those regulators, we have to sort of cut them some slack and not treat them like they're the enemy, right? They're just trying to to do their jobs. I do think there's another category of folks who do have less positive intent. Some of that is because of regulatory capture by the traditional finance industry, right? What we are building is a threat to legacy incumbents who have, generally speaking, crafted regulations in a way that benefits them and stops disruptors from making progress against them. And there are some regulators that I think are more interested in impressing the company that might hire them or put them on their board once they are done serving in government, then they are interested in doing a good job. Uh, And then I think there are some regulators who are and policymakers and, and especially elected officials, particularly members of Congress, who are politically motivated, right? They view crypto as an opportunity to advance their own political careers. And they think that they can score points by cracking down on what they think they can create a negative narrative around. And there's, you know, that's a difficult challenge. And unfortunately, it's hard to convince those folks to see it a different way. But I think that's a political challenge more than it is anything else. And as the general perspective on crypto shifts in the United States, I think elected officials who are responsive to their constituencies and the other policymakers who are responsive to those elected officials, I think the views of those folks will start to change over time. And Jake, like you've also made that jump from an in-house general counsel at Compound to, to working more on the policy side. Like, What motivated this change and what does your day-to-day look like now? Well, you know, what motivated, honestly, was, well, I guess two things. Broadly speaking, when I was at Compound, I was already doing a lot of policy work. And again, that's because so much of what gets done on the legal side in crypto is in this gray area where we're not really sure how the law applies. And so the way that it applies will come down to the decisions of the regulators who are empowered to decide what rulemaking they want to do or what enforcement actions they want to bring. And so policy is really important because it's not so much making hyper-technical legal arguments on behalf of crypto companies, but rather convincing policymakers of what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do. And I think every GC, every in-house counsel, has sort of an outsized policy function in crypto, much more so than in, in other traditional industries. But then the second thing was, much more acutely, the debate over the infrastructure bill's tax provisions in August of last year. And I credit my former CEO, Robert Leshner at Compound, with sort of giving me free reign to spend about three weeks doing nothing but sort of debating this issue and talking to policymakers and working on this in in Washington, D.C. But basically what happened was 
despite our best efforts, this provision was put into the tax code that could have a really significant harmful impact on DeFi. And I think that for me was a moment where I realized the best way that I can make an impact for the future of DeFi broadly is not as a representative of a single project, but rather as a representative of the industry at large. And so when Kristen Smith, our executive director at the Blockchain Association, offered me a job, which was lead the legal and policy function for the industry and build it out however you see fit. To me, that was just an offer I couldn't refuse. So that's where I ended up. And you know, in terms of my day-to-day, without going too deep into the details here, it's basically split between coming up with policy solutions, right? What is the right thing to do? What should the law look like? How can we address the risks that are inherent in a disintermediated financial system in a way that satisfies policymakers, right? So very much a substantive area of work, trying to figure out what are these solutions. And that's about half of it. And then the other half is communicating those solutions to the right people in government and also to industry to try to forge consensus around those solutions and you know try to shape the future of regulation for the industry. So it's interesting every day for sure. And I think going pretty well so far. Definitely valuable work for, for the industry at large. There's a few other policy orgs out there. What are the different policy orgs involved in crypto and, and how are they different from each other? Sure. So I'll let Mark talk about the DeFi Education Fund because that's a really important one. And he and I are both board members. um, So I'll I'll leave that to him. For my part, the Blockchain Association, where I am head of policy, is the main trade association for the industry. So we are a member-driven organization. We have about 75 member organizations, including many in DeFi, and that's a growing number. And we represent the industry's interests in DC. We also have a very well-developed lobbying function, and that's really our role, is to advocate on behalf of the industry. Um, The other organization to know is Coin Center, and hopefully people are already familiar with Coin Center. They are an independent nonprofit think tank. They do not represent the industry. Their job is to come up with what they view as good policy outcomes for crypto and for the US. And they really have a focus on protecting financial freedom and economic freedom, right? Protecting First and Fourth Amendment rights. And so they are a great partner to us, although we come at the issue from a bit of a different angle. But to me, those are the two main organizations to know in DC, the Blockchain Association and Coin Center, along with the DeFi Education Fund, which I'll let Mark say a few words about. Yeah. I mean, the DeFi Education Fund is an advocacy organization. I mean, the important thing about the DeFi Education Fund is, as is stated in its name, like it's focused squarely on DeFi and every decision that's made in terms of like, what do we fund? What do we advocate for is from a DeFi only perspective. And I think it's like really important to have an organization like this on the advocacy policy side of things. Simply because, first of all, I mean, I think we're as far behind as we are on like, even understanding like CFI and crypto, like DeFi and crypto is even further behind. And so like there's an educational component that is extremely important to it. And having the resources to focus on that is, I think, very important. On top of that is, as is natural for anyone who's advocating for their own interests, a lot of the advocacy that's going on is CFI kind of oriented advocacy. And that doesn't mean that groups like Coin Center 
and blockchain association are advocating for CFI, but there's a lot of CFI entities that have their own advocacy and, and policy efforts going on. And their interests are not like very aligned with DeFi. And while not all of them necessarily throw DeFi under the bus, they're certainly not supportive of it. And if you want DeFi to flourish, I think, first of all, you need to have decentralized technology, right? And so like Jake says this all the time, I say it all the time too, is like, we need to focus on just building things as decentralized as possible. But the second part of that is like giving time for the technology to evolve even more, to make that easier, to make it even more censorship resistant and better. And I think organizations like the DeFi Education Fund, like give that an opportunity and give us kind of more time to do it and give like a counterbalance in DC to some of the more CFI voices that exist. Yeah, awesome job, guys, talking about the policy stuff, which is really fascinating. And, and while on that topic, you know, obviously the United States is not the only jurisdiction in the world. And a lot of teams do have the option of either starting something in the United States or maybe another country. What's the climate like right now? Which countries are the most DeFi friendly and how should teams think about going there? I don't really think about it. I mean, it's like the, the age old question in crypto, which is like, what jurisdiction should I go to? I think, look, if we want to answer that directly broadly, like the answer is you see companies going to BVI, Cayman, Switzerland. But I, I don't think that's like a, a very helpful answer because you need to look at like what you're actually trying to achieve, what you're doing. If you're doing, if you're talking about a token distribution, how are you going to distribute it? Are there specific kind of privileges or rights associated with that token? Because like they do, all jurisdictions have regulatory regimes and, and they're still going to apply. Even if the risks are lower than in the US, you still need to like look at the laws and, and figure out how they apply. Uh, taxes end up being a very important driver here, right? And so like how taxes are going to apply based on the entire structure that you're putting in place for your protocol, token issuance, all of that are all going to be very, very relevant. And then what your plans are post-token issuance, whether it's like thinking through like a DAO structure or any centralized activities in which a company may engage in, you need to think about it from that perspective. So I would not say that like thinking about it from like a specific country is very helpful. I think like the important framework to have is what are we trying to achieve here? Start with that and then basically say, okay, so we have a token distribution that we want to do. We have a protocol that we want to launch. We envision having a DAO, for example, like those are the three things. Then you look at like, okay, where are the founders actually located? And like, that's going to end up being a significant driver because there's like limitations on what US people can do, regardless of entities being set up in different places that don't necessarily help. You also need to look at like, is this a truly decentralized protocol? If it is, you are going to be targeting US users intentionally or not with a decentralized protocol. And so there, again, there's going to be limitations on what you can and can't do. So like, this is not like a helpful answer in the sense of like, here's the conclusion. The point in this answer is really to say that like going back to our prior discussion, that like this is like really complex stuff, not developed with lots of risks and rewards. And so like, Relying on counsel in your specific situation ends up being really, really important, even if you hear from others like what they're doing. And the last thing I'll say on this is, as a caveat is like, do not look at what another big DeFi protocol has done and say, I want to do that. 
I mean, that is like probably the most common thing I have heard over the last many years. I want to do this because they did it. I don't know that I've ever worked on two token distributions that I've ever approached in the exact same way. They all have little differences because the specifics of the founder, the protocol, admin keys, future plans, everything ends up being different. So if anyone's wondering what a GC does and how they think, this is it. What Mark said is exactly the sort of stuff you should be thinking about if you have a good GC. Totally. I mean, Mark and I probably should have started this whole thing with our usual disclaimer, right? We are lawyers, but we are not your lawyers. Nothing we say here should be interpreted as legal advice. If you need legal advice, go hire your own lawyers. And I mean, this is one of these things where you've just got to get good legal advice because there is no one size fits all answer to this question. And not to just repeat what Mark said, but I think this point is worth reiterating. You cannot judge the proper risk tolerance based on what other people have done. And I actually meant to say this earlier when there was a question about, you know, how do you tell if your lawyers are giving you overly risky or overly conservative advice? And one thing not to do is to measure that advice against what else is going on in the industry or in the ecosystem broadly. And sort of same thing to another question you guys asked, which was, what are the unproductive questions that founders ask? And to me, the most unproductive question is, why can't I do this? Such and such other project is doing it. That is not an acceptable way to approach making good decisions in crypto. So hire your own lawyer and get advice that's specific to your facts and circumstances. Super helpful, guys. Switching gears a little bit, and, and one of the things that, Mark, you touched on in your last comment, but something a lot of people are wondering right now is the best way to set up and operate a DAO, whether it's a small group of, of people trying to purchase an NFT or a larger protocol trying to organize a collective of different people. So I know the answer may depend on the specifics, but how do you think about best practices for people interested in creating or working for a DAO? Yeah, I'll get more helpful after this, but I think I'll start off by saying it depends on the DAO, right? So if you've got an investment DAO versus like a social club DAO versus like a DeFi DAO, again, all of those are very different in terms of how they need to actually be implemented and structured. I'll focus on like more broadly like DeFi DAOs and how to look at them. Historically, if you think about it, what is like a DeFi DAO? And effectively, it is a group of token holders that holds a treasury and then like admin keys. That's like broadly how I define it. And some of that may be different. In some cases, it could just be a treasury. It technically couldn't, you don't even need to have the treasury. But Regardless, you generally have those two things. And so what we've seen is like, I think those actually work fine when it comes to making some day-to-day decisions around parameter changes, around a protocol, things of that nature. What we've seen is that that structure is not good when it comes to actually trying to grow the protocol further. And I think that's why what we've seen is like the development of kind of various efforts, whether you want to call them committees or sub DAOs. Generally speaking, what you see is smaller groups of people coming together within the DAO to focus on certain areas. Not all that different from different business units coming together, with the one difference being you don't have a top down hierarchy deciding who's coming together and how. It's the community deciding how it comes together. 
And so that structure has operated. And I think like you see it operating all right in certain DAOs, but there's still all the limitations that DAOs have typically had. And like the three that I'll mention that I think are particularly important for founders to just recognize is that you know when you have a DAO and you have everyone acting together, there's certain risks associated with it. Some of those risks are personal liability. Some of those risks are going to be ineffective because you can't actually act in the way that you would like specifically if you want to start agreeing to like off-chain transactions. For example, grants. Committees make grants all the time. They have no agreement that actually obligates anybody to deliver what actually funds are being given for, right? It all comes down to just trust effectively, but really reputation. But you could actually have legal agreements signed. And then like probably the biggest thing that's been ignored is tax. Why? Because, you know, the IRS is still talking about implementing reporting obligations on centralized exchanges starting in 2024. So like, how are they supposed to figure out taxes on like random DAO entities? But the truth is like, that is going to happen with time. And so I think like where DAOs are generally at now is figuring out how you actually structure to deal with those things. I think like probably one of the things you have seen is like reliance on foundations and specifically it's foundations that have actually issued tokens or subsidiaries of the foundation that have issued tokens. And then the DAO essentially relying on the foundation to then act in certain ways. And this only deals with like a limited amount of the concerns that, that I mentioned. And specifically, it allows like off-chain transactions to be entered into. But it's probably the worst organization to be the one involved in this, the one who actually issued the token or controls the one who issued the token, to now be the one who carries out all of the off-chain activities on behalf of the DAO. So I view that as like a very like suboptimal structure that for some reason has gained a certain amount of momentum. And I'm really hoping that momentum stops because I don't, I don't think it's actually a good strategy at all. I think what we're going to see evolve is essentially taking subgroups and sub-DAOs and putting them in a type of entity that still allows that DAO to operate as a DAO. And the first thing that comes to mind is a trust, and specifically something referred to as a purpose trust. In certain jurisdictions like Guernsey, your Jersey, that you can look up on a map like most people need to, to figure out where they are. That's not New Jersey, right? <laughs> That's definitely not New Jersey. Do not try to form a trust in New Jersey and operate your DAO. When you start doing that, what you'll actually realize is that a DAO can operate as a DAO with a private contract between certain parties involved in the DAO and certain rights that the token holders remain so that you can still operate like a true DAO, but limit your liability, limit the tax risk, operate off-chain. And I think that's the type of structure that we're going to see evolve and coming into like the DAO market in the next few months in a more meaningful way. And Mark, it's fascinating what you just spoke about. Could you tell us a little bit more about this Guernsey Trust? I think for a lot of founders, they have a little bit of scar tissue about maybe the legal advice they got in 2017 and 2018. And it seems like there's sort of popular structures that over time look unpopular and like a bad idea, but maybe this one's different. Can you kind of talk more about it? Sure. I think... The key thing to maybe start off of, it kind of gives it a pass to these Guernsey purpose trusts in terms of like risk. And it's because you start from the premise of there is no worse structure from a legal perspective than a DAO, like period. <laughs> the only worse structure than the DAO is when you form a smaller group of multi-sigs to operate within the DAO 
especially when they're operating like individually and not through an entity. So when you start from that, you can't really get worse, but maybe you can, right? Like what would be the worst thing? I think the worst thing would be you create an entity that is subject to the whim of a government and the government can say you are now dissolved. And like, I think that's the issue when you create things like LLCs and foundations and anything of that nature. It's really, in a way, an agreement with the government that is agreeing to allow you to exist in this form with limited liability. And A, that's not a doubt to me, and B, it comes with actual risk. I think the benefit of the trust is that it's literally a private agreement, technically between the trustees and then something referred to as an enforcer. And you could think of like the enforcer as being a watchdog. The enforcer is basically going to look at the trustees and say, are you doing your job? And the question is, what is the trustee's job? Well, the trustee's job is to carry out a purpose that is set out in the trust instrument. And so the purpose might be something along the lines of you're going to operate a growth program, period, <laughs> for the benefit of XYZ DAO, period. And so now you've got a committee of trusted people, technically, which is these trustees who are, have an obligation to fulfill the purpose, which is to grow this DAO with a watchdog watching over it. The nice part about these trusts, though, is that you can give outside parties certain rights. So what kind of right could exist? Well, you have a DAO with token holders who care. So what do you do? You give the token holders certain rights, like what? Well, they can direct the trustees to add a new trustee, to remove a trustee, to add an enforcer, to remove an enforcer, to dissolve the trust, and to send the assets of the trust elsewhere. So effectively what it does is while the trustees get to operate on a day-to-day -day basis, i.e. be effective in the way that they are operating without constant need of hundreds of thousands of people to agree on something, and they can do that with limited liability and the DAO limiting its liability by not actually needing to act, instead having others act who have limited liability. They can sign contracts in a jurisdiction like Guernsey that has no taxes whatsoever, and you suddenly have a situation where you have no filing obligations, no reporting obligations for taxes or otherwise, and you're able to operate like a true DAO with oversight from the token holders who can remove trustees that they don't like or terminate this DAO at any point in time. It should be noted that this does not mean everyone should run out and form a trust in Guernsey and then taxes are all good everywhere and nobody's got anything to worry about. There has to be thought put into this specifically like how this Guernsey trust is actually going to work so that it actually operates in the way and with the legal protections and the tax benefits that I just described, because that's not always going to be the case. It's just not a formula that everybody can apply equally at all times. Let me first say that Mark is brilliant on this subject, and so folks should listen to everything he just said. And I think it requires the creativity of a legal engineer like Mark is to come up with solutions like he has with the Guernsey Trust. And he may be too humble to say so, but this is very much a, a creation from his mind that I think we will see increasingly used across the industry, both well and perhaps, as he said, not well by folks who don't fully understand what they're doing. But I think this is just another reason why you want smart, creative lawyers who are really passionate about this helping to figure these structures out. Let me say just a few things about DAOs. 
And I could rant about this for a while because honestly, I'm not particularly impressed with the state of the DAO ecosystem right now. And I have ranted at Mark about this quite a lot over the last you know several months. So I'll try to give you the short version. I think first of all, you have to ask why you want a DAO. And I think a lot of people don't have a good answer to that question other than it's the thing we're doing now and they're popular and we can issue a token that will make us a bunch of money if we say that it has governance rights in a DAO. And that is a very bad idea. And it is one that is very likely not to look good in a few years, just as you suggested, Larry. So I think you have to ask, what is the purpose of this DAO? Recognizing that DAOs are very inefficient, very costly, and very risky from a legal and regulatory perspective. Why would you want to do something like this? And there are plenty of good reasons. For example, you have control of an admin key in a single address, and that is a risk from a centralization perspective. And the entire point of DeFi is to eliminate those centralization risks. And the best way to eliminate that risk is to split that admin key up among tens or hundreds of thousands of holders of governance tokens so that no one person or small group of people can carry out a malicious attack on the protocol. That's a really good reason to have a DAO. I think that a lot of people are creating DAOs without those good reasons. And I think what we're starting to see is people creating DAOs and then realizing that DAOs are very inefficient and then slowly but surely working their way back into a traditional corporate structure where you have many holders of governance tokens, but a very small group of control persons who are actually in charge of the quote unquote DAO, who act very much like officers and directors of an unincorporated association who may or may not be responsible responsive to the holders of these governance tokens who are, for all intents and purposes, like equity shareholders. That is not a good model for a DAO. And if that's what your DAO becomes, then you can expect to have trouble, I think, with regulators down the road. And that's not something, frankly, from a policy perspective that I think we can defend. I think what we want to defend is the concept of a genuinely decentralized organization with flat hierarchy that is resilient to attack either by nation states or by individual malicious actors, where the DAO does not look like a corporation. And there is a specific reason other than decentralization theater why the DAO should exist. And I think in order to have that, what you want to focus on obsessively is making sure that the DAO has ultimate control and ultimate discretion over whatever the DAO does, whether that is votes to implement changes to protocols or to use the treasury funds or to set up these sub-DAO entities that Mark was talking about. It should always be the token holders or the DAO members who have the ultimate say over what happens, like the ultimate managerial control over the DAO. And if you are a developer team and you've launched a DeFi protocol and you also want to create a DAO around it and you set up a DAO in which you, the developer team, cannot be replaced, that you are sort of the essential actor in the DAO, and you are the one making decisions on behalf of the community, maybe with community input, but really you're the ones making the decisions. And there's no real path 
for the DAO to boot you out of the system, then what you have created is very likely a securities relationship that will get you in a lot of trouble with US regulators and others. So this is sort of the warning side to the positive vision that Mark gave for what a DAO can be. I think we really have to be careful about how these things look and make sure they don't just look like corporations that have issued equity shares to create a secondary market for liquid trading so that the issuers of the token can dump on retail and get rich. I feel like we sort of painted the, the, the regulators in this podcast in a negative light, even though they're doing really, really good work to understand this industry and to try to create policy that, that helps it flourish. But if you were to put yourself in the shoes of some of the, the regulators in this country, the United States, what sort of things would you do to start regulating DeFi and then maybe even crypto more broadly? I mean, if it were me, I would start with the easy cases. Right? I think if you look at the broad crypto ecosystem, you can still see a lot of decentralization theater and more so than that, bad actors who are using the concept of decentralization to carry out frauds and scams. Right? A, a good example of this is the Wonderland project where basically it was supposed to be a DAO, but actually it was under the control of one person. And that one person happens to have been a fraud who was associated with an exchange that was drained of all of its funds, Quadriga CX, some number of years ago. And sure enough, he pulled the same type of scam as he had been known to pull over the years. If I was a regulator, that's what I would be looking at, right? I would be looking at the actual bad actors who are genuinely harming the users of these systems and victimizing them without their knowledge and consent. And I would go after those folks. I would not do what, unfortunately, I, I know you recognize we're sort of painting a negative light here, but it sort of is what it is, at least here in the US. I would not spend my time harassing projects that are trying to build in good faith or trying to prevent consumers from opting into these systems when those consumers or investors or users have full insight into the risks that they're taking on by participating. I think there's a lot of confusion about what consumer protection actually means. To me, an inherent part of consumer protection is consumer choice. And so as a regulator, if it were me, I would be looking for ways to allow folks to engage in new types of ecosystems and use new protocols, provided that they understand the risk that they're taking on. And I would focus my attention on the bad actors in the space who, you know, frankly, none of us in crypto want to be able to use this technology in order to defraud unsuspecting victims. Only thing I'll add to that is I think to Jake's point, that is what you should be focused on, right? Is those bad actors. And we're at a point in the market where unfortunately, we're like maybe past the hype cycle, but at the point where everybody who decided to move forward with a project during the hype cycle is now like at a point where they're ready to make that project public. And, and maybe that actually happened like a month or two ago, and it's still like continuing on. But the point is that like, the regulators can have their hands full just focusing on those and the ones that will be coming. And with limited resources, every time that they decide to focus on a good actor instead of a bad actor, you're basically letting other people get harmed by those bad actors. And there are plenty of them right now. So like, given that fact, I think the biggest focus needs to be on like, how is it that these bad actors are acting right now? Unfortunately, a lot of it is through DAOs. I think one of the biggest hints a regulator can take 
is when there is a Twitter account created and then like a month later, a token is issued for like a DeFi protocol. And it's like, maybe Twitter account's not the best gauge of that, but some other piece of information. But the point is like, when you launch a DeFi protocol and then like a month later, you have a DAO set up, you can be certain that that DAO is going to be centralized in many, many harmful ways. And not like soft points of centralization that we talk about with some like DeFi protocols, but like absolute centralization over funds in many respects. And that's really where regulators should be looking. And there's so many of them that it's not even hard to find them if you are looking. Awesome. So we've talked about the meta of crypto law broadly. We've talked a bit about DeFi and a bit about DAOs. Is there anything else that you guys are sort of looking for clarity about in the next year or two outside of or related to these topics? There are so many things. Maybe I'll give you a couple quick ones. One is, I I mentioned earlier, the infrastructure bills, tax provisions, and very long story short, the question is whether non-custodial parties, such as the providers of a front-end interface will be regulated as brokers for the purpose of tax reporting. So right now, you know, let's say you have a, an account with a securities brokerage, a Vanguard or a Charles Schwab or something like that. At the end of the year, they will produce for you a 1099, a tax report that helps you understand your capital gains and losses. They also provide that to the IRS. The question now is whether any types of participants in the DeFi ecosystem might be captured by that same regulation and be required to produce those tax reports, that would mean that those parties would have to collect personal identifying information, which is not something that non-custodial software providers are currently required to do. So that's a, a big issue here in DC that we're working on now with the Treasury Department and IRS officials. So that's one big one. I think the second one is the one we've been discussing about DAOs, which is, can we change the definition of a DAO under probably state law, although possibly federal law as well, so that they aren't such a sort of risky, unknown entity, right? Is there a way that we can say DAOs, just like all other types of business forms, should have the benefit of limited liability and should be allowed to pay taxes and sign contracts and act as an LLC or a corporation or a cooperative or a partnership or any other type of legally recognized entity can. And that's a big project, but one that I think is really important. I think that we do need to recognize that DAOs have an extraordinary amount of promise as a new way for humans to coordinate across borders. And there should be a state somewhere in the US that wants to become sort of like the Delaware of crypto. Delaware law is widely seen as the best body of law for corporations and other types of entities. I expect that there will be a state that decides to show up and do the same for DAOs. So I think those are at least two really interesting tracks to watch in the next year or two. Yeah, from my perspective, I think there's, I'll name like a couple real quick that would be great to see clarity on. I'm not hopeful that we will. And if we do, it's going to be through enforcement. I think one of the biggest ones is around just decentralized exchanges in general. When you look at a decentralized exchange and you think about like policy concerns that the regulators 
and Congress has around an, a traditional exchange. And you map those onto a decentralized exchange. What you very quickly see is that most of these policy concerns are actually addressed. And one of the things that would be very nice, right, is for there to be recognition of the fact that that actually exists. Like, why? Well, it's not just good for crypto. It's good for everybody. It's good for everybody if you have a better exchange system that works, not just for crypto, but also for stocks and other things of that nature. Reality is we're not actually going to see that happen <laughs> in any like short time frame. Really, the most likely thing to happen is that there is some kind of litigation over the status of a DEX needing to be registered or not. And in this case, unlike Ether Delta, where Ether Delta essentially like agreed to an order with the LCC, you'd actually have like a confrontational decision around a decentralized exchange, which is something that I think we very much need. And I think some of those decisions around those have like a broader impact on a lot of things, which includes things like interest rate protocols, for example, are going to be impacted by those kind of decisions. So I think like something of that nature is actually, I think, pretty important. I'm just not optimistic that we'll see it unless it's through uh, litigation, which I think is possible, but that'll play out slowly. I'd say like the next thing that would be like very nice to see play out would be more guidance from regulators in general around domestic versus like non-domestic use of protocols. So like specifically, one of the things that I think has happened more and more is that you see protocols that are blocking US versus not blocking the US. And like, this is like a perfect example of what Jake was talking about earlier in terms of like the good actors and like the bad actors. It doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad actor if you're not like geofencing the US, but you're actually more likely to get like press, for example, if you are in a way that like brings attention and could result in like negative treatment than if you don't. And we actually have like pretty much no guidance from regulators on what they think of like technical efforts to differentiate between US versus non-US users. And the thing is, as in like in the long term, this is actually like not a good solution. And why? Well, the answer is that means you have some centralized component if you can do that. And I think Jake and I would both agree we don't want a centralized component. But the truth is like current use of decentralized front ends is not really a good experience. And it's not something that like broadly exists. And in the meantime, we've had years and years of people who use IP addresses and another technology to try to differentiate between US and non-US users. But we have like no guidance from any agencies like across the board pretty much on this issue. And so until we get to a point where we're looking at like completely decentralized front ends across the board, this is the type of guidance that would be helpful. And it's the type of guidance that would actually help the regulators. What do you actually want to see? so that you believe that U.S. users are actually being protected rather than letting people guess and then on the back end deciding that it wasn't enough and deciding to go after those who actually made like good faith efforts rather than those who didn't care. And so that's like a type of action that I think regulators could easily take that would actually be very like helpful in the current state of the market, even though I don't think it's something that should be necessary in the long term. 
we got really wonky on the policy stuff here. So all the policy wonks are really probably cheering during that discussion. We have limited time, guys. So maybe one last question. It seems like, Jake, Mark, you guys agree on pretty much everything, but are there things you guys disagree on? Are there things insiders who are her GCs at other top projects and just kind of lawyers in the space that are vehemently disagreeing about? And what are those things and, and why are people disagreeing? That could be a last question for us. What a great question. What do we disagree about, Mark? You and I don't disagree about enough. <laughs> but I think there are issues that I think other lawyers would disagree with us on. Like, I think maybe one of the most interesting issues, and this is very esoteric, but I'll walk through it kind of slowly, is like how you actually treat tokens and investment contracts. So we all know like the Howey test and really the Howey test is not just to determine whether something is a security. A Howey test is to determine whether something is an investment contract, which then in turn would be a security. The question that lawyers like very much do not agree on, pretty much like across the board, like there's different views on this, is like, what is the investment contract? And there's kind of really only two views that could really exist on this. I'd say like the first one would be the token itself is an investment contract. And the second one is the token is actually just an asset. And there is a promise that wraps around that token that is called an investment contract and that exists with it. And what lawyers will disagree on is whether those two things end up creating differences from like a legal perspective. Like, why is this important? And the answer is because, well, when you initially sell it, it doesn't matter. But then the question is, what happens when you want to sell a token in a secondary market? Do you sell it? with just the token being transferred. Well, if the token is a security, then there's no way you avoid a securities transaction when that happens. Another possibility within the world of an investment contract wraps around the token is actually where another split exists with attorneys. The first one is in the secondary transaction under certain circumstances, not only does the token transfer, but the investment contract that wraps around it actually transfers with it. All of those promises go along with it. Well, another set of attorneys are actually going to say, no, 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 in the secondary market, that promise goes away and you only have the token that transfers. And this is actually really important from a Howey perspective, because I think some people will have heard about the concept of like a token morphing or a investment contract existing and no longer existing. This is something that like a lot of lawyers rely on this concept. Actually, pretty much every lawyer in this space, I would say, with very few exceptions, rely at one point or another on the concept of a token or the investment contract around it, no longer being a security at some point in time. And like all the legal theories like work from that. And there end up being like material differences in how this works if you have this like wrapper around it or you don't have this wrapper around it, or whether a token that is wrapped can be transferred without that wrapper, or the wrapper goes along with it. So there's like in a very like esoteric version of like something that lawyers like disagree on. I could walk through like a bunch of others, but I'll leave it to like Jake to give like maybe another example if he wants. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough concept, beautifully explained. So well done. I think like broadly speaking, I mean, Mark and I really are 
very much on the same page about most of this, I guess, more than we ought to be. But I think his point is a good example of where he and I differ, sort of, again, from a policy perspective from other lawyers. I think that Mark and I tend to fall sort of in the sweet spot of both understanding the technicalities of the rules and regulations, while also appreciating the underlying policy goals and being willing to sort of engage with the potential risks and the potential downsides of DeFi and crypto more broadly. And I think where we tend to disagree with other lawyers, it's because they are on one or another of the ends of the spectrum, where either they're sort of looking for loopholes, right? Very technical arguments, like the one that Mark just described, that I suppose if you just look at the rules as they are written, you can make an argument around them, but they don't really comport with the spirit of the rules and don't really make sense when you consider how we are trying to develop a a robust, secure, transparent, well-functioning financial system. Or on the other end of the spectrum, where there's just, I think, a lack of understanding about what's happening in the space or a a fundamental rejection of the concept of decentralization, right? I don't know about everyone else, but I feel like I should be issued like an NFT that says I've got my crypto legal stamp after listening to this podcast because the knowledge here was just great. And I suspect a lot of people will start reaching out to you guys asking for for counsel, which I'm sure you'll be super thrilled with because you're all super free. This was an awesome Awesome episode, guys. Thanks so much for that time. I know we're running a little bit long. Before we pause, any sort of other stuff you guys wanted to cover before we end the podcast? No, those were great questions and I definitely appreciate you having us. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Thanks. This was fun.